0: Bob Murphy Show, episode one ninety one. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This episode is going to be devoted to the economics of Bitcoin and specifically, I'm going to, as a, as an economist, just explain or clarify some of the issues regarding Bitcoin and its adoption and what would it look like if Bitcoin eventually became a widely used money, things like that. And specifically, the way I'll motivate this is to say I'm first going to critique the camp that argues that Bitcoin can never be a money because of the intrinsic value issue. I'm going to clarify that, but then I'm going to be fair and I'm going to go against the true believers, the Bitcoin maximalists, who basically argue if you ever spend your Bitcoins, you're being a fool, that sort of thing, the Hodel forever camp. And obviously, folks, I'm exaggerating for rhetorical effect here, but just to clarify what, you know what's wrong with that. And then in the third section of this particular episode, I'll just explain a little bit about let's call it portfolio theory. And just to give a framework for how you would think through these issues and put it all together, like, hey, what happens in the beginning if Bitcoin is an asset that's appreciating rapidly, because then that means nobody wants to spend it because it keeps going up so much. But then on the other hand, how could it ever become a money if nobody ever spends it? But then why is Bitcoin rising so rapidly if it's not eventually going to become a money? Like, what's the point? You know, so there's lots of weird things like that, that I haven't seen too many people think all the way through. So, in this episode, I'm just trying to help clarify your own thoughts on this. So, I'm not trying to convince you one way or the other. If you think Bitcoin is a bubble and it's going to crash and Peter Schiff is going to be vindicated in the year 2042, more power to you. I'm just going to help you state your case perhaps more lucidly. And on the other hand, if you think Bitcoin is the wave of the future and everybody in 2042 is going to know it's the global currency, again, I just want to give you a, a clearer framework to to think through these issues and to make your points. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into it. So first, like I say, let me tackle this idea: people who argue that oh, Bitcoin is just clearly in a bubble because it's got no intrinsic value, right? As opposed to something like gold, where that's a commodity that has direct uses, industrial purposes, ornamental purposes. Bitcoin, all it is is something that you hope goes up in value it's the bigger fool theory that you're paying some money for it now in the hopes that you can sucker somebody else down the road into paying you even more for it but when you ask what's driving that what's the basis what are the fundamentals driving bitcoin's market price right now nothing it's all smoke and mirrors all right so that's a typical claim and since i already brought up his name you know peter schiff is the primary representative of this camp by the way let me just go ahead and mention i really like peter's analysis On other issues, you know, I think he's a great person to just talk about, like, the problems with the Fed and to be able to communicate, especially to a a lay audience, the problems with government and central bank policies in the last decade. But but I I do differ with him on the way he communicates his concerns about Bitcoin. Okay, so first and most obvious, and people have been beaten to death with this thing, but it goes ahead and, and I'll say it in terms of modern subjective value theory the value theory that replaced the old classical theory of value you know karl menger was one of the people the pioneers of this so called marginalist subjectivist revolution in economic thought starting in 1871 the phrase intrinsic value is nonsensical nothing has intrinsic value value is subjective it's in our minds okay now if that were the only issue with people saying the reason Bitcoin is in a bubble is because it has no intrinsic value, unlike gold, which does have intrinsic value, I wouldn't really put too much weight on that. I mean, that would just sort of be a terminological quibble because we all know what somebody like Peter Schiff means when he says Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, other, unlike gold, which does, all right? He means there's no non-financial use for it. Whereas with gold, you use it for things. Gold is useful to human beings besides the fact that it's a, quote, store of wealth or that it serves as the market's money or the free market money or whatever phrase you want to use. Gold, even in a state of barter, people like gold. And if you're familiar with the way economists, not just Carl Menger, but even like Adam Smith and people like that, explain the origin of money, that's the way the story typically goes, that we can imagine society before money emerged. And in Carl Menger's telling of the tale, certain goods were more saleable or we might say marketable or liquid than others. They had a wider market. But why did they have a market in the first place? Well, because they were directly useful. People liked eggs. They liked water. They liked diamonds. They liked gold for reasons other than speculation or uh, ease of transactions. And then, given that they had these original uses for them. And there were certain markets based on people's subjective preferences. Then things had relative exchange value. And then certain goods because of their properties were more convenient that if you had like a, a telescope, you were trying to bring to market and sell, and you really wanted some eggs in a state of direct barter where you just, just did what's called direct exchange, you would have to go find somebody who had a bunch of eggs and wanted your telescope. And what are the chances you're going to find that? So instead, what you would do is look around for anybody who wanted a telescope. And as long as they were selling something more marketable than a telescope, you might make that trade, assuming that the exchange ratio was decent. So, you know, you see somebody who's selling gallons of milk and wants to get a telescope. So you go ahead and trade with that person, get the gallons of milk, because, you know, I'm much more likely to find someone selling eggs who wants milk than someone selling eggs who wants a telescope. Right, And that's the way you build up the explanation for the origin of money. And so the Austrian point and the reason Ludwig von Mises came up with what's called the regression theorem and said that any medium of exchange has to emerge from something that originally started as a regular commodity because that's the way the story goes. And that story it wouldn't really work to say, oh, there's something that nobody used for anything, but they all recognize this would make a great – Medium of exchange, So let's all have, you know, one side of every transaction involve this item that nobody right now is using for anything. And that's problematic because it's not clear why anyone would do that. But also, how do you know what the purchasing power of that thing should be at step one? You have no frame of reference, whereas if you first have direct exchange, you do know, oh, yeah, ounces of gold that people are directly obtaining because they want to use it for industrial purposes or because it looks pretty we know how many eggs an ounce of gold trades for from a state of direct barter. And so then that's the, the foundation, the starting point. And then once gold acquires what we would nowadays call a monetary value, then you know its purchasing power increases, but at least we had some basis of where did it come from in the beginning? What was the foundation? Okay, there's some quote rational basis by which to start judging it based on fundamentals. Okay, so that's where you know, people like Peter Schiff are coming from and where the Austrians who say Mises regression theorem shows Bitcoin can't ever be a money. Because look, at Mises does say quite explicitly that it's unthinkable for a medium of exchange to emerge that did not have a prior history as just a regular commodity, All right? That's not an exact quote, but it's close, okay? So those people aren't making that stuff up. So you can see how coming out of that tradition, especially in the beginning, a lot of Austrian types were very skeptical of Bitcoin. And so this this can't be. All right. And like I say, to m- merely dismiss those people because they use the term intrinsic value, I think is a bit of pedantic quibbling that you know what they're trying to say. And that's a substantive point. If all the critics could say to those people is, oh, there's no such thing as intrinsic value, that really wouldn't be that big a deal. They could just say, okay, we'll patch up our, our terminology, but come on, our point stands. The issue is, can Bitcoin ever be a money or is there something intrinsic to Austrian monetary theory and value theory that prevents that from happening? And the label you use isn't really that big a deal. Okay. So I think that that type of objection is misguided and it's not just because of the unfortunate use of the term intrinsic value. I think there really is a substantive problem. So let me Explain it this way, and I'm going to rely on Mises and Rothbard to make the point since, like I say, so many people think that the work of Mises and Rothbard shows Bitcoin can't ever become a money. And specifically, what I'm going to do is point out that both Mises and Rothbard agreed that even though gold emerged as the market's money from an initial state where it was just a regular commodity, they both agreed that if gold should somehow one day lose all of its uses besides its role as a medium of exchange, it could still serve that monetary function. All right, so first I'll read from Mises. So this is from The Theory of Money and Credit, which he put out in 1912. Mises says, Many of the most eminent economists have taken it for granted that the value of money and of the material of which it is made depends solely on its industrial employment and that the purchasing power of our present-day metallic money, for instance, and consequently the possibility of its continued employment as money, would immediately disappear if the properties of the monetary material as a useful metal were done away with by some accident or other. Nowadays, this opinion is no longer tenable, not merely because there is a whole series of phenomena which it leaves unaccounted for, but chiefly because it is in any case opposed to the fundamental laws of the theory of economic value. To assert that the value of money is based on the non-monetary employment of its material is to eliminate the real problem altogether. All right, so Mises, is, of course, writing in his very formal style, but what he's doing there in his book, again, this is the book that the English translation of the title is The Theory of Money and Credit. So this is his work on monetary theory where he, inaugurates what's now called the regression theorem, incidentally, in this book. Mises is saying nowadays, writing in the early 1900s, there are still some economists who erroneously believe that the way you explain the market value of gold is by reference to its industrial and, you know, ornamental purposes. And he's saying, no, that's wrong. That doesn't, that does not fit in with the modern theory of value. But also he's saying it dodges the whole question. What we're trying to do as monetary economists is explain why is it that gold has a higher purchasing power because it's such a good medium of exchange, because it's being used now as a money. How how do we gauge or how do we as economists explain the height of that component of money's purchasing power that's due to its monetary characteristics? And so to say, oh, the, the way you explain the market's valuation of some good that's being used as the money is by reference to its non-monetary uses. Mises is saying, well, you've just given up the game altogether. That's not what you're, that's not what we're trying to explain as economists. Okay. And again, so he didn't like knock you over the head with it, but from the way he wrote there, Mises is clearly saying if money lost all of its industrial purposes by some accident or other, it still theoretically could serve as money whereas Mises is criticizing those economists of his day who think, oh, no, it would, it would immediately cease to be a money if, if it no longer had those industrial purposes, okay? So that's one example. Now, Rothbard's, as usual, more or, or clearer about it. So you're, you're sure exactly what he's saying. So let me go ahead and read from Rothbard. This is from Man Economy and State, all right, Rothbard. Actually, let me go ahead. I'm gonna, it's gonna be a little bit of a lengthy quotation, but I want you to realize I'm not cherry picking. I'm not trying to hide anything. Okay, so I'm gonna read a little bit of Rothbard talking about what the no intrinsic value crowd rests on. So you can see that, yep, Rothbard's with you on that point, but then show you where he goes with it. So this is Rothbard from An Economy and State Demand for a good as a medium of exchange must be predicated on a previously existing array of prices in terms of other goods. A medium of exchange can arise only out of a commodity previously used directly in a barter situation and therefore having had an array of prices in terms of other goods. Money must develop out of a commodity with a previously existing purchasing power, such as gold and silver had. It cannot be created out of thin air by any sudden social compact or edict of government. Right, so, so far, you know, the anti-Bitcoiners are like, yep, Rothbard for the win. But hang on, he goes on to say, on the other hand, it does not follow from this analysis that if an extant money, were to lose its direct uses, it could no longer be used as money. Thus, if gold, after being established as money, were suddenly to lose its value in ornaments or industrial uses, it would not necessarily lose its character as a money. Once a medium of exchange has been established as a money, money prices continue to be set. If on day X, gold loses its direct uses, there will still be previously existing money prices that had been established on day X minus one, and these prices form the basis for the marginal utility of gold on day X. Similarly, the money prices thereby determined on the day X form the basis for the marginal utility of money on day X plus one. From X on, gold could be demanded for its exchange value alone and not at all for its direct use. Therefore, while it is absolutely necessary that a money originate as a commodity with direct uses, it is not absolutely necessary that the direct uses continue after the money has been established. Okay, so I submit that if you fully digest what Mises and Rothbard just told you there, and particularly Rothbard, you will realize that Bitcoin has already surpassed that hurdle. That there is no longer any remaining issue about whether Bitcoin is viable as a money due to the regression theorem or Austrian monetary theory more generally. Okay, because again, I'm not gonna get into this particular point right now because I wanna talk about other stuff, but specifically what's going on is where the, the hurdle is, is something becoming a medium of exchange. It's not something becoming a money, right? So a medium of exchange means people acquire a good, not because they intend to consume it or use it in production themselves, but because they intend to trade it away for something else in the future. That's what makes a medium of exchange. Something is a money if it, number one, is a medium of exchange and two, is widely accepted as such. Okay, so all money is our media of exchange, but not all media of exchange are money, okay? And so all the stuff that Mises and Rothbard there are saying about the threshold or the the roadblock on a good being coming adopted eventually is it needs to have had a prior history as a regular commodity to become a medium of exchange. That's where the issue is. That's the roadblock. That's the checkpoint. And so- Bitcoin already has become a medium of exchange. There are people who give up real goods and services to obtain Bitcoins, not because they're going to eat the Bitcoins, not because they're going to use Bitcoins in the factory to crank out cars, but because they, down the road, intend to trade the Bitcoins away for other goods and services. So Bitcoin already is a medium of exchange in the Austrian sense of that term. And so if the regression theorem were going to pose any hindrance to bitcoin becoming adopted it already would have done so and it didn't do so it didn't hinder it bitcoin has become a medium of exchange and again going back to rothbard's point he rothbard's saying if all of a sudden today nobody used gold for anything directly if for some reason all the industrial and commercial and ornamental purposes of gold vanished we still theoretically could continue to use gold as a form of money. And the regression theorem wouldn't stop us from doing that because the issue is like why the regression theorem, you know, ties the purchasing power today to yesterday's purchasing power, to the day before, to the day before. And then you keep going and ultimately you stop when you get back to barter. So the the purpose of the regression theorem in linking it back to an original state of barter where the commodity in question was used directly is just to complete the explanation, otherwise there's an infinite regress. But the important thing is for people today to know how to form expectations about the purchasing power of this thing tomorrow, they just need to look at its purchasing power in the immediate past. And so what Rothbard was getting there with his X and X minus one and X plus one stuff is he's saying, even if gold were to lose all of its industrial and ornamental purposes today, we still know what gold fetched in the market against other goods and services two hours ago or yesterday, if you want to use that terminology. And so that gives us a basis for knowing, well, okay, what's its purchasing power likely to be tomorrow? Okay. So that was the issue. That was why Mises said a commodity needed to have that history of direct exchange, just so people could have some basis of what's its relative exchange value against other units of commodities for us then to determine, do we want to start holding it? You could say for speculative purposes or for transaction purposes or as a medium of exchange right? And so Bitcoin right now has that history. We know what the market price of Bitcoin was yesterday. So even though going forward, oh no, Bitcoin no longer has any industrial or ornamental purposes, doesn't matter. We have the history of its prices. And that's all you need, as Rothbard just said. Okay. So again, just let me state it one last time. I understand how the writings of Mises and Rothbard before Bitcoin ever existed might have led people and maybe myself, I don't remember my frame of mind before I knew Bitcoin existed, but I'm certainly open to the idea that I wouldn't have thought it would work. You say, yeah, how could some new quote cryptocurrency that's just invented by some guy with a white paper and some kids are playing around on message boards, why would anybody ever accept that thing? Because they'd have no idea how much its purchasing power was. That's where the hindrance, that's where the roadblock would be. But Bitcoin now does have an obvious market price And I don't just mean in terms of dollars. I mean, if you wanted to go buy something from some agorist and that person was accepting Bitcoin, you know, you could obtain a certain number of chickens and bicycle parts and blah, 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 in exchange for fractions of Bitcoins. You can do that right now. So you have an idea of what Bitcoin's purchasing power is right now. That's all you need in order for it to serve as a potential medium of exchange going forward. And if enough people adopted it as such, it would be a money. Okay. Let me make a separate argument for those of you who are still like, okay, yeah, Bob, you're just, you're quibbling, fine. You're coming up with theoretical bubble. Come on, you know what we're talking about. Gold has this solid foundational pricing. We can think about where does its value derive from ultimately. It makes sense that gold is worth something. Where's Bitcoin? Come on, it's just a total bubble. Okay, but by your own logic then, let's take gold. How much right now is its value for purely industrial and ornamental purposes? right? If, if gold, if we set aside for the moment, the fact that gold also is this wonderful medium of exchange or store of value or whatever phrase you want to use, let's put that component of its value aside. How much of its current market price is due just to its direct uses? You know, and I have no idea what you think, but let's say it's $300 an ounce, okay? So you must think that gold right now is largely in a bubble, all right, as I'm recording this, the gold price, it's something like 1740. All right. So you would have to say that right now anybody buying except you know, accepting gold is a fool because it is in a big bubble. It's not gonna go to zero, you would say, but you would say, yeah, at some point, all these investors around the world, these speculators who are bidding up the price of gold above its fundamental value. It's intrinsic value of 300, you know, up to this crazy price of 1740 an ounce. What are you kidding me? No, that, the direct uses don't justify such an inflated price. So gold has been in this giant bubble for thousands of years, right? Ever since gold started to be valued, not for just its direct uses, but because of its wonderful ability to serve as a medium of exchange, its purchasing power was higher than it otherwise would have been. And so using your framework, the way you denigrate Bitcoin, you should also be saying that gold has been in a bubble for thousands of years. And you're a fool if you get into it now, because eventually it's going down to its fundamental value, which at today's price levels is about $300 an ounce. So anybody paying more than $300 an ounce for Bitcoin, or sorry, for gold, is just setting yourself up for heartache, right? Is that how you want to talk? I mean, if you do talk like that, that's consistent at least, but that's not usually how the Bitcoin critic who's a hard money enthusiast talks that they think gold is solid and they don't think that component of gold's current market value that's due to its role as a medium of exchange represents, you know, silliness or a bubble or just, you know, oh that's that's the madness of crowds. And you know, who knows that's the bigger fool theory. No, they think that anchor, that foundation of the I just made up the number $300 announced because of its direct uses then is the basis upon which it's much higher market price can be supported, quote, rationally. And I'm saying you can do the same thing with Bitcoin. It's just the anchor price happens to be zero. And then going up $50,000 above that, that's all due to, oh yeah, that's because of Bitcoin's role as a medium of exchange. And that's why it's valued there. That's that component of its value. All right, so there's no qualitative difference there. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column with the New York Times. That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably, he's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast, critiquing Krugman first weekly and then biweekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listen to the podcast, if you go get the book Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman. And there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change. All sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. All right, moving on. Let's turn now to the hodl or hodl. I don't know how you guys pronounce that term. H O D L forever people that, you know, and again, I realize here I'm exaggerating for comic effect, but there are some people that the way they write and talk about Bitcoin, you know, big Bitcoin enthusiasts, anytime somebody says how they sold some off, they're like, oh, what are you doing, man? You should have held. And I want to just, let's think this through. All right. (laughs) Logically, it can't be that if you really understood Bitcoin and its promise, you would never sell it. You would always just buy it and never get rid of it because then that would be tantamount to not owning any, right? Logically speaking, if you obtained your Bitcoins or fractions, depending on your wealth, and then you knew I am sitting on this forever because this is just going to keep going up and up and up. I'm, I'm never getting rid of this thing. Well, then that's almost the same thing as you just not having it if you're never allowed to sell it. Now, the, the slight exception there is you could technically borrow against it using it as the collateral for a loan. But even there, technically, the only reason somebody would lend you money against it is that they know if push came to shove and you defaulted on the loan, they could you know seize those things from you and then sell, sell them. Okay. So if you are saying I'm never getting rid of the Bitcoins that I'm now taking into my possession, then what good are they? The point of you acquiring Bitcoins is that at some point you will get rid of them. That's what they do for you. That's the point. As opposed to, you know, you, the point of buying bottled water is at some point you're going to drink it. The point of buying a house is you get to live in it or you can rent it out for income. All right, so yes, the house might also gain in value in the bottled water if you're anticipating a Mad Max scenario. It might jump in price and maybe you're saying, no, the reason I'm getting so many bottles of water, yeah, I'm going to drink some of them, but also when, uh, Kamala Harris declares herself dictator, and everybody needs bottled water. Then I'm going to be the warlord of my neighborhood because I have all the bottled water. Okay, that's fine too. But again, the point is you're going to use it for something, or you're going to give it away to somebody who is going to use it. That's the point of acquiring assets: is you know, what's the, what are they going to be used for? And so I'm saying when it comes to Bitcoin, the only thing ultimately that explains why are you giving up real goods and services now for this thing is because you intend to sell it down the road. And so it can't be that you think, no, 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 you're a fool. You don't really appreciate Bitcoin and how good it is if you have plans of getting rid of it when the price gets high enough. Because to me, that shows you didn't get what it is. And I'm just pointing out like, no, literally, if you, <laughs> if you literally implemented your, your philosophy, then that means you're never gonna benefit from it, okay? Let me... Just walk through another little analysis here. Let's do a quick little thought experiment to make sure you're thinking about this right. Suppose you had an asset, it doesn't have to be Bitcoin, it can be anything, it can be a stock. Suppose you had an asset that was guaranteed to increase by a factor of 10 every year, forever, right? Every year, this thing would go up 10 times. However, you can measure it in dollars, you can measure it in Bitcoins for all I care, right? whatever your measurement of market value is that you think is appropriate. Suppose you had some asset that you knew for sure would go up by 10 times every year, forever. Now, if you think it makes sense to hang on to your Bitcoins and not sell them just because there's a temporary or the, you know there's a, a spike in the price. and No, 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 keep holding them, buddy. Things are just getting started. The best is yet to come. You would think surely for this asset that I just supposed that you would never want to get rid of that thing, right? And I'm saying, no, that's actually not true, I'm guessing. And again, if it were true, then it would just show how silly you're being. That What's the point of holding some stock, for example, if you never sell any of it? Okay, so let's say, just walk through the numbers here. You buy this, let's say you put $100 into it. I'm going to use dollars just for convenience. You can change it to Satoshi's if you want, if that's the way you think of wealth being denominated in terms of market value, but fine. Let's just say dollars, okay? You put $100 into this asset that by construction, by stipulation in this thought experiment goes up 10 times every year, okay? So at the end of the first year, you have $1,000, right? Because it went up by a factor of 10. Your initial 100 turned into 1,000. And you still sit on like, no, no, I know this thing's going up 10 times every year. I am just gonna be disciplined. I'm a low time preference kind of guy. I'm just gonna sit back and let this thing ride. I'm gonna hold it, all right? At the end of the second year, it's worth 10,000. The end of the third year, it's worth 100,000. Fourth year, it's worth a million. At The end of the fifth year, it's worth 10 million. At the end of the sixth year, it's worth 100 million. OK, now, let me stop. Are you telling me six years into this thing, when your initial $100 dollars is worth 100 million, that you're still not going to sell the tiniest bit of that stock, right? Like so if you originally bought whatever? 10 shares, you're not going to sell 1% of one share at least when you're sitting on something that now has a market value of 100000000 million. You're still going to be going to your regular job where your boss yells at you every other day or something. You're you're still going to be driving your beat-up car. You're you're not going to start eating nicer food and getting nicer clothes when you're worth $100 million. And the thing too is given that it's going to keep increasing so much, you know that if you were to spend, you know, let's say a million, you would just need to wait a little bit in order to recoup that, if you understand what, what I'm saying there. That just spending a million dollars on consumption, you know, buying a nice house somewhere, buying a nice car, getting a new wardrobe or whatever, just spending a million dollars, boom, for yourself. Get, yourself. get yourself something nice. That when you have a hundred million and you know one year later, that's going to turn into a billion I'm saying if you just calculate by you consuming that 1 million, all you've done is push back the various dates at which you will have a certain target net worth a little bit. Here, let me actually just compute it just so you make sure you get my point. Okay, so for example, if you start out with 100 million and then you decide to spend 1 million of it, so now you're down to 99 million, you just have to wait two days. If I've done the math right, you'd be back to 100 million, right? If you take the fact that it goes up by a factor of 10 over the course of a year. And then you break it down into, okay, so how much per day is the percentage appreciation, the growth rate, right? So that's what I'm saying. Like if you're thinking in the mentality of, no, it's going up 10 times a year. Don't ever spend that, man. Just wait. Another way of looking at it is right. Because it's rising so rapidly and you know it's going to, you can afford to go ahead and spend a million dollars today And you will recoup that. You'll be back to where you started in terms of your financial wealth in two days. And so, you know, really, are you you just going to continue to deprive yourself when you're currently worth 100 million and you know you could blow a million of it, get in a house and a car and fancy clothes and whatever, eating your weight in sushi, and all you'd have to do is wait two days and you'd be back, you would have recouped that million? Really? (laughs) So that's, you know, the way I think you should think about this. And now let me be clear. Some of you are going to say, yeah, you're right, Bob. I'm going to start spending some of my profits. I've been sitting on these Bitcoins for eight years and it's time I live large. And then down the road, you're going to get mad at me and say, Bob, I can't believe I went and went on a vacation and right now I would be worth an extra $2 billion if I hadn't listened to your stupid profligacy. All right. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just pointing out that the mere fact that you are certain something is going to keep going up for years and years in the future does not mean you should never sell off any of it in the interim. Okay, now, the last chunk of this episode, let me just walk through some of the standard analysis that financial economists use when it comes to modern portfolio theory. I guess if you want to put a label on what this is and apply it to the case of Bitcoin. All right, so different assets have different attributes. So something like you know, just viewing them as asset classes, all right? So uh, if you hold stocks, what's what's the pros and cons? Well, especially if, it's, if it pays dividends, right? So some stocks, if you hold them, the company periodically when it, you know, has profits, it goes ahead and then, you know, pays its creditors and then pays the employees and blah, 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 pays for the resources it uses up. And then it's got some net income left over and it might choose to, distribute some of that in the form of dividend payments to the shareholders, okay? And so that's one benefit of owning stocks is if they're dividend paying, that they generate an income. The fact that you own these assets mean you have money flowing into your hands that you can then do whatever you want with, and that you still own the same number of shares of stock, all right? They also might have capital appreciation, price appreciation, just, you know, the market price of this thing might go up. So you buy a stock at 100, maybe Ten years down the road, it's selling for 160. So you've had that 60% appreciation just in the price, and along the way, like I said, maybe you've occasionally been getting dividend payments too. The downside of stocks are that they're very volatile, or they can be. There's nothing you buy at 100 today; the thing might go to basically zero if the company is unprofitable and you know all of its assets get seized by the creditors in theory, the stock could go way down in principle all the way to zero, right? So you might lose everything. And just more generally, you might have a, there might be a bad year and, you know, the the S&P 500 was down something like 40% at one point in 2008. So even someone who had a quote diversified holding of stocks in the U.S. could have seen their portfolio down 40% at one point. And that just, you know, for that to happen in a matter of a few months is pretty risky, right? So you don't want to have all of your assets in stocks because they could just drop on you like that. You, couldn't, you can't depend on them. All right, what about real estate? Okay, well, real estate generates an income, right? You, if you get tenants or whatever, or you have some kind of property on it. So it, it gives you a flow of income. It might have price appreciation. It's good as an inflation hedge, just like the stock market can be. You know, other things equal... If the government debases the currency in your jurisdiction and you hold stocks and real estate, those things, you know, their nominal prices are going to rise at least somewhat because of the debasement of the currency. So that's good. On the other hand, though, again, very risky. The real estate market can crash tomorrow. What about bonds? Okay, well, the nice thing about bonds are they provide definite either income or price appreciation, depending on what kind of bond it is, and it's guaranteed, contractually. So it's not metaphysically guaranteed, but they're much less risky or much safer than stocks and real estate. You can far more, if you, if you really want to make sure you have $1,000 next year, it's better to buy a corporate bond than to buy stock in that corporation that you you know think, oh, the price of those stocks are going to go up to 1000 next year. Or if they're currently at 1000 I think they're going to hold their value. No, if you're more concerned about the certainty of having that money there for you, measured in dollars, if we're talking about the US right now, then bonds are a better asset for you than stocks or real estate. So yeah, there still is risk because a company could default, or even if it's a government, they could default on the bonds, but it's safer than just hoping for the market price. On the other hand, even there, it's not as safe as actual currency, because you put $1,000 into a bond that you think is going to be, you know, because they're, they're going to give you $1,050 next year, so for a, a 5% rate of return. If all of a sudden, two months after that deal, when you bought the bond for 1000 you really need cash, and interest rates have risen in the meantime, you might not be able to sell it for $1,000. You might not even be able to get your original money back, even though if you're willing to hold it for the full 12 months, you're going to get $1,050. All right, so that's what's called interest rate risk. Bonds are not as liquid as cash is, all right, and they don't hold their, you know, dollar value the way cash does. If you're sitting on a thousand dollars, literally of currency, or a demand deposit with a commercial bank, then unless the bank fails or unless someone breaks into your house and steals the actual currency, you know that thousand dollars is going to be worth a thousand dollars three months from now. Whereas, again, your quote thousand dollar bond might not be worth $1,000 three months from now, even though you know if you hold it to maturity, you're going to get the principal plus the interest, okay? So that's just different ways of looking. What about gold and silver? You buy a bunch of gold bars or gold coins. That's very good as an inflation hedge, but it doesn't generate an income. It just sits there, and there's still risk there too. The price could collapse on you, and it has, in fact. You know, people in the early 80s burned by the high price inflation, loaded up on gold and silver, and then you know, their prices crashed. Okay, so these different assets have different characteristics. And so what is it about money? Well, money has a 0% nominal return. I'm saying literally holding money, not just like, sometimes we call things cash, but there they mean stuff like money market funds or whatever. But no, I'm not talking about that. I mean, literally holding cash, the demand to hold cash in terms of, you know, how do economists think about that? What's the demand to hold money? It is there. There is a reason to hold it. And- Part of it, of course, is that it is the supremely liquid asset. If you want to obtain other things, you need to have money first, typically. Right? Most transactions, what you would first be doing is taking, if you had some other asset and you wanted to buy something, whether you had a bunch of bonds and you wanted to buy groceries with it, you don't go to the grocery store and turn over T-bills. You know, It's not going like to register like, oh yeah, go to the customer service desk if you've got T-bills to pay for your order. No, they're saying like, what are you, they're saying? Like, what are you talking about? You can't use that here. What? No, we take money. And interestingly, that's the reason that demand deposits with commercial banks and this gets in the hundred percent reserve controversy. The grocery store will take claims on money issued by Bank of America, right? So it's it's interesting. It's it's not merely that they only take cash. Like they also take claims on cash that are reputable bank issues, but they won't take T bills. Okay, so. It's true now, what happens if you're in a regime where there's rampant price inflation, right? So every year, consumer prices go up by 10% or more. People still hold money. There's, there's still a demand to hold money, but it's much lower, right? That one way of thinking about it is the share of your total wealth, your financial assets, put it that way, that is constituted by actual money is probably smaller, because the money is so rapidly losing its purchasing power, right? So again, let me just rephrase that. Other things equal, if you're in a regime where prices are rising at 10% plus a year, you're still holding money. But, you know, if you added up the the dollar value of all your different financial assets, the share that you would hold in the form of actual currency or in a checking account balance at the bank is lower than it would be in a regime where prices are only rising at 1% a year. OK, so on the flip side, then, if we ever got to a point where everybody's using Bitcoin is the money and prices quoted in Bitcoin are falling, then Bitcoin or then people's portfolios, the percentage allocated to Bitcoin would be relatively high because just sitting on Bitcoin's as the price of goods and services measured in bitcoins kept falling over time, right? Because at some point there's gonna be 21 million bitcoins and that's it. Whereas the output of cars and computers and apples is going to keep going up year after year. So other things equal, you would ex- and, you know, there's more people being born and whatnot. The real value of bitcoins are going to keep going up. Once we get into that, what's sometimes called a deflationary phase, where the people saying Bitcoin is inherently deflationary. That's what they mean. It's not that the number of Bitcoin shrinks. Well, actually it does if people lose some of them all the time. But what they mean is it's purchasing power tends to go up. And some people are alarmed by that. And I'm going to say, no, that just means you'd have a larger share of your portfolio in the form of the money, assuming Bitcoin became the money. And if anything, that's probably a good thing. Just like we can see it's a bad thing if inflation is really rampant. And so people don't have much in the form of money. Because that's, it's hard for people to plan for the future, right? So money is a very safe asset. It's dependable. You know, if I want $1,000 six months from now, if I hold $1,000 in currency, I have that. Whereas other assets, that's not the case, okay? And so there's a sense in which a society where people can't trust the money to retain its value, it's hard to make long-term plans, you know, in the, in the ultimate limit where, there's hyperinflation and people just abandon the currency, then you revert to a state of barter and you know the, the money, you lose the advantages of a monetary economy. Okay. So on the flip side of that, the mere fact that the money is gaining in purchasing power all the time, arguably is a, is a virtue of it far from being a handicap or a problem. And so this kind of ties in with the earlier thing I was saying where people might say, well, no, because then nobody would ever spend it. Well, No, I mean, just think of that thought experiment I went through before with the thing rising by 10 times every year. Yes, at some point they would. If people are holding Bitcoins, the early adopters, because they know, oh, this eventually is going to be the money of planet Earth, assuming they're right, and it turns into that, at some point they would be so fabulously wealthy as the price of Bitcoin approached, you know, quote, the fair value, let's call it its fundamental value based on its role as the world's currency, then these in dollar terms, trillionaires or quadrillionaires at some point would start spending money and then other people would get Bitcoins in their possession. So they starts start spreading the wealth as it were. All right, I'm speaking loosely, of course. Okay, so that's the way to think about that. And also just a more pedestrian example, the price of computing power keeps falling over time, right? How, my, how many dollars you have to spend to get whatever, 64K of RAM <laughs> keeps coming way down. I remember when I was a kid in the 80s and we got, it was a Tandy 1000 was our home computer. And I think it started out, we got 128K of RAM and we loved it. And then I convinced my dad because I wanted to get some computer game that required 256K. And we splurged and we got the upgrade, the card that got put in and it was 640K of RAM. Can you imagine Man, that that machine was humming? The graphics were better. It was great. I mean, and now like that's, you know, just laughable. The idea that the RAM on my entire system was 640K, not megabytes, my new K, and I loved it, all right? And it wasn't like that machine back then was $2. I don't remember how much it was, but it was more in dollars than than I think, you know, a cheap old laptop today is, okay? So I'm saying even putting aside price inflation, like the fact that, they're printing up a lot more dollars. Still, the amount of dollars you have to hand over to get a given amount of computing power, whether you want to do RAM, like that's memory, obviously, or megahertz or something in the processors. I'm saying if you have an objective metric of computer power, that has become incredibly cheap over time and it's continually falling. So using the logic that some people use to say why Bitcoin can never be a currency, you would have to argue nobody ever buys a computer. Because every time you're about to go buy a computer, you're about to spend $2,000 on a computer. Well, no, wait. Because if you just waited a year, that same $2,000 would get you a much better machine. But then the same would be true next year. And so nobody ever buys computers because they just keep getting cheaper. The, the purchasing power of money relative to computing power keeps going up. And so therefore, do we conclude that nobody ever buys new computers? No, we don't conclude that. Right? And it's not a bane of our existence. Like, oh, a free market computers would have worked except they keep making so many improvements over time progress is so rapid that that's why the whole industry collapses with no revenue does anyone talk like that no all right and so likewise the fact that humanity is sitting on a currency namely bitcoin that stays constant in the number of units and output real output and goods and services keeps going up every year that's not spelling the death knell for humanity like oh maybe it could have worked if we had a stable currency and just constant output. But the fact that we keep getting more cars per year, why would anyone ever buy a car? No, that, that doesn't follow, right? Okay. Also, let me just mention, perhaps another way of thinking about this. If people are hodling and they're sitting on their Bitcoins and the price keeps going up, like, oh, right now it's 50,000, next year it's 60,000, then it's gonna go to 70 and 80 and 90. And it's just going keep going up, woo-hoo, and we're all just sitting there loving it. Spencer Shift keeps... Tweaking his dad on Twitter. It's great. Well, the reason it keeps going up, what does that mean? It means some people on planet Earth are still exchanging some of their Bitcoins for dollars or for other currencies and they're doing the exchange ratio to compute for us what's the right now, what's the market price measured in dollars of Bitcoins, okay? That's what it means when the price keeps going up. There are transactions that are telling us what the current going price is because at any given time, There are some people who are handing over bitcoins or fractions thereof in exchange for dollars or for euros or yen, whatever. That's where we're getting the prices from. That's how we know it keeps going up is because the people selling their bitcoins are getting better and better deals for them. Okay. So it, like I say, cannot be that, oh, if you were, if people were smart, nobody would ever sell their bitcoins because the price would just keep going up and they'd see it and well, the price can't keep going up if nobody literally sells, right? Okay. The last thing, and then just to think through this a little bit, because there is this weirdness, it's like, well, wait a minute, how do we, so people are holding it like for speculative reasons, but then how does it turn into money so then they're willing to spend it? So it is admittedly a bit tricky and it's something like this that, like I said, it's, it's not an all or nothing, it's things on the margin, other things equal, there's tendencies. And so forth but suppose you look ahead to see a world where everyone's using bitcoin is the money and at that point whatever you think it's purchasing power would be and you know you can run the numbers and say ah oh, well if bitcoin were to serve as the medium of exchange for all of earth's transactions if, if the existing you know if the 21 million bitcoins had to be distributed in such a way to facilitate all the transactions and then you can, you know, calculate what would, what would be the implied price of a Bitcoin right now, you know, so people can do that kind of, quote, fundamental analysis to try to come up with a ballpark figure of what they think the ultimate ceiling on Bitcoin would be. You know, it's going to be some humongous number, right? Something, okay, so if it ever did get to that level, that purchasing power, it wouldn't be appreciating so much year after year. Then the only appreciation would be the fact that the real output is going up year after year, Right absent, you know, some speculative change, absent some change in, quote, the demand curve for Bitcoins, all right? And so I are just thinking about it that one way of analyzing it is to say, nowadays, the people who see that distant future, who know that, oh yeah, by the year 2050, the price of a Bitcoin in today's dollars is gonna be something like 30 million at least. And so I think Bitcoin is undervalued until it hits 30 million or at least until it hits a level such that a regular rate of return from that point up to the year 2050 hitting 30 million. Right. In other words, if you thought Bitcoin was going to be worth 30 million in the year 2050, you wouldn't pay 30 million for it right now. You would pay less than 30 million because you'd still want to have some appreciation on your money over the next 30 years or 29 years. Right. So that's the minor point I'm making there. Okay. So the people though, who, you know, let's say they think it's 30 million And so right now, oh yeah, buying Bitcoin at 55,000 is still a huge bargain. I'm still gonna get this humongous implicit rate of return through the year 2050 if I hodl. Good, so those people are providing a service. The more people who think like that, if they are correct, by them hodling, by them going out and buying, they're pushing up the price. So they're getting Bitcoin to its quote, correct value sooner. So Bitcoin, they push up the price, until it, it hits $30 million sooner than otherwise. Or like I said, strictly speaking, it hits the level such that by a, quote, regular rate of appreciation, then it hits $30 million by the year 2050. But they're pushing up those huge speculative gains by their hodling, by going out and snatching it up when they think it's undervalued. And so they're speeding along that process. They're, they're bringing Bitcoin to where it, quote, should be. And then by that by getting those big price appreciations out of the way sooner rather than later, they bring forward in time the point at which people can then more comfortably start exchanging Bitcoins for goods and services. It can get through the speculative phase and it being held as an asset, as, as a speculative asset, and then transition to its role as a medium of exchange. And so that's, that's the social function if you will, of the people who are early adopters. and Now, if they're wrong, suppose Peter Schiff is right and Bitcoin is going to crash eventually. Well, then by them bidding up the price, they're just exacerbating this bubble. But you know that's no different from anything. Like if people think some company is going to be worth a lot more in the future, if they're right, they perform a social function, a service by bidding up the price of that stock now. If they're wrong and the company really is built on quicksand, then they're hurting everybody by pushing up the price now, right? So I'm not saying anything weird here about Bitcoin. That's just in in general. Speculation is good if it is profitable, if it moves prices towards where they should be. And that's what the social function of the Bitcoin holders is. And so in that context then, I'm saying what has to happen is they snatch up the Bitcoin now, they push up the price, but then as the price gets higher and higher, some of them engage in quote profit taking and they start selling off some portion of their Bitcoin holdings, you know, denominated in Satoshis. I don't mean dollar amounts. I'm saying like they originally had whatever, eight Bitcoins and now they sell off some of it. So now they only have 7.2 because wow, the price keeps going up and up and I'm going to live a little, right? So as they do that, you know, they, they absorb all the existing stock and then as they sell it off, as the price keeps skyrocketing, they're then distributing some of the existing stock of Bitcoins among more human beings. And so again, they're, performing a very useful social function by identifying the future money of planet earth speeding along the process by which it can be adopted and then they go ahead and dole it out to other people say okay here it is we were right this is the money now everyone more of you are agreeing and they're like yeah, yeah we agree and then here you go but i'm not just going to give it to you you're going to give me some cars for it or houses whatever okay so that's one way of thinking about how this thing works again if they happen to be correct and bitcoin is the wave of the future that's the way to think about how this would work. So there's nothing unpatriotic about selling off your Bitcoins over time as the price skyrockets and quote profit-taking that needs to happen in order for it to then transition to its role as the globe's medium of exchange if you think that's what it's going to do. Okay, well, that's a good place to wrap up. Last thing I'll mention, if you want to learn more about how Bitcoin actually just works mechanically, like what's the the math involved. And and we start out with a very simple analysis and then we just keep adding layers of complexity so you can take it as far as you want. I would recommend the intro that Silas Barta and I wrote several years ago. And you go to understandingbitcoin.us to download that free PDF. And uh, if you find it useful, there's instructions in there about how you can donate some Satoshis to Silas and me a little something uh, pretty effort thanks everybody I'll see you next time you've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls for more information and to subscribe to this podcast visit bobmurphyshow.com